I say Bobby McFerrin, what comes to mind? For the love, you uncultured swines, you. Come on, that's right. How many of you, I can go and answer this question. Y'all are all lacking in the happiness department today. I can see it, right? How many of you would just be delighted today if just a big dump truck of happiness could just fall right on top of you? Just need some happiness in my life today. Well, if that's you, you're in the right place because we're studying what's called the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached. And he leads off with happiness. That's at the heart of what I think he's gonna be communicating with us today. So we're diving back into that sermon today. And really, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is this, that Jesus totally changes a life. The life of a person who turns to Jesus for salvation, becomes a part of God's kingdom, is a person whose life is completely different. They come into the kingdom of God. When Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, he's not just talking about way out there in the future, one day we get to be in the kingdom, but right now, this day, those who turn from sin and self, repent in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, we become citizens of his kingdom right now. If you're here today and Jesus has saved you, you are in the kingdom right here on February the 5th in the year 2023. And last week, we just flew Flew over the entire Sermon on the Mount, kind of trying to figure out the outline that Jesus had put there for us. And we said that kingdom people, everything's different about them. They have different attitudes and different purpose, different understanding. They have different standards. They have different worship and they have different desires. Life in the kingdom as the people of God, is about living in a totally different sort of way than you were living before. And by the way, this new way of living, it has a starting point. The new way of living starts with a new birth. New birth is what begins to move us toward this new way of living. Jesus, in John chapter three, you don't have to turn there, but he's having a conversation with a religious guy by the name of Nicodemus, and Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. So here's what the Sermon on the Mount is. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus describing when a person is born again, this is what I'm gonna make their life like. When a person is born again, this is what their new life in Christ is going to be. Now listen, if you have not experienced new life in Christ, it could be because you've never experienced new birth from Christ. If you have never experienced new life in Jesus It could be because you've never experienced a new birth from Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is a picture from Jesus of what the kingdom of God is supposed to be, what it's supposed to look like. And really, it's just simply this. He's painting a picture for us that kingdom people will increasingly look more and more like their king. Increasingly, kingdom people will look more like King Jesus. So the Sermon on the Mount, he's showing us this is the way life is to be lived in my kingdom. He starts in chapter five. That's where the Sermon on the Mount starts. The Bible says that he sits down to share these words. And as Jesus sits down, I know this is what I do when I preach. I don't sit. You sit. I stand. But I do this. And some of you tell me this. You say, you always look at me when you're preaching. It's because I do. I look at all of y'all. 
I'm looking at you. I'm trying to figure out where you are, how you are, what's going on. If you're acting right in church, if you're not, I'm like, I'm like locked in trying to survey all the faces. You know, Jesus, I think on that day as he sat down, he probably started to survey all the faces of the people who were there on that hillside that day. But because he's also God, I would think that he's probably not only surveying the faces of the people who were seated there in that moment, but it's very possible because he's fully God that he was surveying all the faces of all of humanity down through the corridors of time. And as he did that, certainly he would have seen upon all of our faces the very same thing. All of us, human beings, Desperately searching for true happiness. Desperately searching, hunting for what will provide true happiness. Blaise Pascal, about four or five hundred years ago, said this, and I think he nailed it. He said, happiness is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. I think he got it right. I believe that's the desperate search of humanity to find Happiness, everybody wants it. Everybody is relentlessly seeking after it. And so it is no mistake that the first word out of the mouth of Jesus in what may be considered the greatest sermon ever preached is the word happy. He sounds that note and as it reverberates, it captures the attention of every human heart, including mine today. And I hope that it would be capturing the attention of your heart today as well. Most of our English Bibles have probably chosen the word blessed, although I think happy is the better word. The reason most of our English Bibles chose the word blessed is because four or 500 years ago when Bible translations started coming into the English language, the words blessed and happy were really synonymous sort of terms. But I think the word Jesus has in mind is the word happy. But in our day today, the word happy doesn't mean what it meant four or 500 years ago. When Jesus uses the word happy, he's not using the word happy like we think of happy. We think of happy in a real shallow, circumstantial sort of way, right? My team won, so I'm happy. If they had not won, I would not be happy. The sun's shining today, I'm happy. If it was rainy today, I wouldn't be happy, right? Circumstantial, really kind of shallow. That's not the kind of happiness that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the kind of happiness that every human heart's looking for. Lasting, deep, abiding kind of happiness that's beyond our wildest imagination even. And I love it that Jesus starts this sermon not with a command, but really with a congratulations. He's speaking to kingdom people. He's speaking to people who have experienced that new birth, and it's almost as if he's saying to them, congratulations, you found true happiness. It's here in this kingdom. Congratulations, kingdom people. You're happy now. You're blessed now. And that happiness and that blessedness flows out of a set of attitudes that he's about to unpack. And these attitudes have been developed developed by God himself in these people's lives. Now think about that. This is, this is amazing, that, that we were sinners, we were enemies to God, but God came after us. He suffered and he died on the cross in our place. God pursued our hearts. God loved us first. God reached down and he saved us. He changed our lives and then he rewarded us for all that. He did all the heavy lifting. He did all the work and we get the reward. We get to 
be the blessed ones. We get to be the happy ones. That's amazing. Why does he do it that way, by the way? Because in doing it that way, he gets all the glory. We don't go, yeah, well, you know, I did my part. No, we did nothing. He did it all. He gets all the glory. What do we get? We get joy. That's the way it works. He gets the glory and we get the joy. Well, let's look at the attitudes of kingdom people. We're going to put a thing up here on the screen for you guys to look at. And, and this is how I want to set it up, really in three parts. Identity, attitude, reward. Eight main statements that Jesus is going to make. And I'm going to categorize those into identity, attitude, and reward. Jesus will start each statement with an identity statement. It'll be the word happy or the word blessed. I'm going to go with happy. It's a statement of identity. These are the happy ones, the blessed ones, the kingdom ones. So he starts with reminding people who they are. And then from that transformed identity flows a transformed attitude. There's an attitude change. Attitude difference is made in that person's life. And the result then of that transformed attitude is a reward from God. Now let me say this. These are not like, these aren't personality traits. This isn't like Jesus coming up with a personality test to go, okay, well, you kind of lean toward humble and you over here, you sort of lean merciful. That's not what he's doing. These are not descriptions of a bunch of different kind of people. All of these statements are describing one person, a kingdom person. They're describing a born again person. They're describing a saved person. You say, why are you telling us that? Because I've not understood this most of my life. I read the Beatitudes and thought Jesus is describing different kinds of people. That's not what he's doing. He's describing a kingdom man. He's describing a kingdom woman, a kingdom student. This is a total package. This isn't like a little buffet of traits that Jesus put out there going, okay, well, if you wanna be some of that, then you can work on that one. That's not what he's doing here. These are descriptions of a person who has experienced new birth, through repentance and faith in Jesus, and who's now experiencing the work of Jesus in their life, who is changing everything about them in the kingdom. So the first description of a kingdom person, Jesus says, verse three, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. He starts with identity. Who's he talking about? The happy ones, the blessed ones, the kingdom ones. And what is their attitude? Their poor in spirit. Now, doesn't that sound happy? Right? What? Poor? You had me, Jesus, at happy, and then like you juked into poor in spirit and lost me there, because I don't think poor in spirit and happy are really supposed to go together. Well, what does Jesus mean by poor in spirit? Well, this will be on your test next week, so lock down into this. By poor in spirit, Jesus says, this is the person who knows that spiritually they're broke. They know that spiritually they have nothing to bring to God. Spiritually they have nothing to offer God that would earn their favor before him, that, that would merit grace from God. That there's nothing in them. They know that before God they're merely beggars spiritually. They have nothing that they could ever contribute that would increase the godness of God. They, they recognize that I don't have anything, God, to bring to the table. Now look, this is the complete opposite of our world system right now, which is all about, hey, be self-reliant, right? Be, be self-confident, believe in yourself. 
Just do your best and put your, this is Disneyland theology, just put your best foot forward. But the poor in spirit, no, before God, I don't have a best foot to put forward. I don't even have a best pinky toe before God to put forward. I got nothing before God. The poor in spirit recognize that. So why in the world are they happy? Why? Well, Jesus says they're happy because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. By the way, until you become poor in spirit, you can't get into the kingdom of heaven. Until you come with a heart that says, God, I need you. Nothing in my hand I bring, but only to your cross I cling. That's the cry of the heart that comes into the kingdom of heaven, into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God belongs to the people who are aware that the only thing that they contribute to salvation is the sin for which Jesus suffered and died. And this awareness that life in the kingdom is by God's grace and by God's mercy, and by God's love, that recognition that God did it all, and he did it for his glory, and he did it for my joy, that results in happy. Because now the pressure's off. It's not up to my performance. It's not up to my score, but Jesus has done it all. So I'm asking you today, are you poor in spirit? Is that the position, the posture of your heart this morning before God? Have you come to that place of admitting that you're the one that needs God, not the other way around? Or do you find yourself thinking, God, you're so lucky to have me. You're so lucky that I'm on your team, God. What would you do? Because God, if I didn't do this, if I didn't, if I didn't do that, then who would do it, God? What would you do without me, God, right? You never are gonna be filled with happiness. And so you first embrace being poor in spirit, that God is God and I'm not. That's the path to happiness. How do you become poor in spirit? Well, I think it starts with this. I think you get out of the mirror. You stop looking at you and you start to look at God. This is the way it went down in Isaiah chapter six in the Old Testament, Isaiah the prophet. He said, hey, I just saw the Lord. And you know what he said? Woe is me. I am broke, busted, and disgusting before a God who is like this. That's the beginning of being poor in spirit. And all the rest of the statements that we're about to look at, they flow out of that one. They flow out of that one. All the rest of these statements we're looking at come from that. You can't skip that one and get to the rest. That's, that's how you get into the kingdom. That's how you position yourself to experience the work of God in your life. Second statement. Jesus says, verse four, happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Again, he starts with identity, happy ones, blessed ones, kingdom ones. And who's he talking about? He's talking about those who mourn. Okay, Jesus, wait a minute. Happy and mourning. That doesn't add up. That's not making sense at all. Why are these people mourning? Why are these people grieving? Who's he talking about? He's talking about kingdom people. What do kingdom people grieve over? Kingdom people grieve over sin. Kingdom people grieve over the brokenness of this world. Kingdom people grieve over the pain that sin and brokenness has caused in them and in the world around them. And Jesus says, 
Happy are the people who grieve because the world's broken. Happy are the people who grieve because of sin and pain. They go through life with this heaviness on them because their mind is always sort of back in the Garden of Eden where it all came off the tracks. They live with this sort of heaviness that says, if only that hadn't happened. If only that hadn't happened, then we would not be here. They go through life with this deep longing in their heart that everything would be made new. Why does Jesus say that people who are mourning and heavy with sorrow like that, why does he say they're happy? Because he just said they'll be comforted. They will be truly comforted. They will be comforted by God himself. And that's how you will be truly happy. He said, I don't understand. Think about this. People that don't know God, are they ever truly comforted? No. But those who know God and those who grieve over the sin and the pain and the brokenness, they'll be comforted by God. People without God, they don't deal with grief and heaviness and sorrow like kingdom people do. That's at least in part why today we have things like Netflix and 24-7 sports, and pleasure, and unending food, and drink, and material things, because the world is trying to figure out how they can numb their grief and their sorrow. They can find no comfort for it, so how can they medicate themselves in it? But Jesus says kingdom people aren't like that. Kingdom people aren't grabbing things to numb themselves and medicate themselves from the grief and the heaviness and the pain and the sorrow of this world. Kingdom people are comforted in their grief by the fact that they know Jesus is king of all. And they know that his kingdom has come and that his kingdom is coming in full. They know kingdom people are truly comforted because they know, as I said at a memorial service just yesterday, they know King Jesus is coming and he's gonna wipe away every tear from our eyes. And they're truly comforted. This is why Jesus says those who mourn, they're happy. They're happy. Kingdom people know that things are being made new and they will be made new. And kingdom people are far happier than all the people in the world who are trying to amuse themselves and medicate their sorrows and their pain away with things that don't bring true comfort but actually ultimately ultimately only produce more pain and more brokenness. Third thing Jesus says, it says, happy are the humble. Another word there is meek, for they will inherit the earth. He leads off with identity. Blessed ones, happy ones, kingdom ones. What attitudes he's talking about? The humble, the meek. What does that mean? Meekness is this humble, selfless, self-forgetfulness. Doesn't that sound kind of nice? Self-forgetfulness. Gentlemen, listen. Meek does not mean weak. Meek means power under control. When you put a saddle on a horse, you put a bit in its mouth, you don't siphon out its power, but you subdue its power. It's now under your control. It's to be used for the purposes now that you intend. Meekness, humility says, I could assert myself. I could push myself, I could exalt myself, I could flex, I could bow up, I could push my weight around, but I'm not gonna do that because I've yielded my strength to my king. It's no longer 
about me. The, the man or the woman who is meek, who is humble, has thoughts that don't revolve around themselves. Listen, they neither self-exalt nor do they self-loathe. Humility and meekness is not, man, I hate myself, I'm the worst, I'm the most. Humility is self-forgetfulness. You're neither self-exalting or self-loathing. You're joining with Paul when he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. A meek person is a person who's fully submitted to the kingship of Jesus. And they have no other agenda now but to live for him to live for his glory. Their life is under his control. And they're happy. Jesus says they're happy. Why? They're happy to trust him. They're happy to trust his goodness. They're happy to trust his sovereignty. They're happy to trust his care over them. They're not exhausting themselves by striving and pushing, shoving, asserting themselves, but rather they're simply resting in his care for them. And what is their reward? What did Jesus say? The humble, the meek, they shall inherit what? The earth. I don't know if you know this about kingdom people, but kingdom people, what they look the most forward to in their life is not checking out of this world and going to float on a cloud with a harp for all of eternity. That's not what kingdom people are looking forward to. Kingdom people, in fact, aren't even most looking forward to going someplace way out there to a place called heaven. Kingdom people are looking forward to heaven coming down here to this place called earth. Kingdom people are looking forward to God making a new heaven and a new earth. And Jesus says to them, they will inherit that earth. There'll be a new world, a new creation, and no more sin, no more brokenness. And God says that world, that earth is going to be inherited by the humble, by the meek. Hey, and if you're checking out on me, don't check out on me. The meek who are going to inherit the earth are the same people who were mourning over the brokenness of sin. They're, they're the same people who were poor. He's describing the same person. This is the born again. This is the new life in Jesus crowd. This is the saved. These are the kingdom people. The meek, the humble shall inherit there. So yeah, they're pretty happy. Fourth statement from Jesus, verse six. He says, blessed or happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Again, this sounds weird poor in spirit and humble and mourning. And now he says, hunger and thirsting are happy people. We're not happy when we hunger and thirst, really, right? I mean, we've kind of invented a whole nother word recently when we're hangry, right? We act ugly when we're hungry, but Jesus says, no, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, these people are gonna be happy. Just like being poor in spirit, Morning. That doesn't sound like the path to happiness. Hunger and thirst doesn't sound like the path to happiness, but Jesus says it is. Here he says, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Who's he talking about? He's talking about those people who have a continual desire, a continual desire, longing and craving to be free from sin. They have a desire to be truly set free from sin's struggles and temptations. They want to be set free from sin in all of its forms and manifestations. They're, they're not satisfied just to be free from sin's penalty. Man, they want to be free from sin's power. And ultimately, they want to be free from sin's presence. They're hungering and thirsting for that kind of 
righteousness. They hunger and thirst for a day when, when the world that's so broken and our flesh that's so bent towards sin and, and the devil that's so bent on stealing and killing and destroying, those that hunger and thirst for righteousness are looking forward to a time when we are severed completely from all that. And we're really free and we're really home, no more evil, no more suffering, no more death, no more pain. Instead, that we would no longer live in a world that's defined by wrongness, but now that we would live in a world that's defined by righteousness. And Jesus says those people are happy. Those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're happy because they know that's coming. They know it's coming. In all of its fullness. Fifth thing Jesus says, verse seven, he says, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. By the way, you feeling pretty confident right now about being a kingdom person? You feeling like, hey, matching up pretty good with all that. I don't feel too good about y'all. I gotta be honest with you. I don't feel too good about you. Just kind of thinking, God, why won't you let me pastor a church that has kingdom people in it? Because I don't think grace life is it. And if you're paying attention to my life, you probably are thinking, God, why don't you send us a pastor that's a kingdom person? Because I don't think this dude is even close to that. I hope it's okay that we're feeling that. I think Jesus wants us to be feeling a little bit of that right now in this moment. The next thing he said there is, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Again, he leads with identity, right? Happy ones, blessed ones, kingdom ones. Who's he talking about here? Those that have an attitude of mercy, an attitude of compassion, attitude of generosity. And by the way, this is more than an attitude. Because mercy doesn't just feel something and think something. Mercy does something. Mercy moves into action. If you see suffering, you see pain, but you don't do anything, you just feel bad, that's not being merciful. Merciful moves. Mercy's active. Mercy goes toward the need, toward the suffering, toward the pain. Mercy has an active approach. A posture of readiness in the world towards sin and suffering. And what's their reward? Jesus said, they receive mercy. Now, it sounds like Jesus is saying you can earn the mercy of God. It sounds like Jesus is saying if you show mercy to others, then God's gonna give mercy to you. Is that what Jesus is saying? I don't think that's what Jesus is saying, but it sounds like that. And Jesus is good at that. Jesus is good at saying things that kind of provoke us a little bit and kind of make us go, what now? Say again? And to get us to kind of lean in a little bit more. But let's set what he just said in the context of everything he's already said. All right, one, I realize I'm broke, busted, bankrupt before God who is good and right and holy in all of his ways. And not only that, but I'm mourning over my sin and my brokenness and the sin and the brokenness of the world. And now because of that, I'm humble before the Lord. I'm meek, I'm surrendered to the Lord. No longer I, but Christ who lives. And now my hunger and thirst is for more of him. My hunger and thirst is for righteousness. Now, doesn't it make sense? If all of that has been changed about me, God's changed all of that about me, that he would also now change the way I see the people around me. That now I would see them not as objects of my judgment, not as objects of my wrath, but I would see them as objects of the mercy of God like I am and like I was. That now I begin to see people with the eyes of Jesus. I see them instead of with a critical spirit, a condemning spirit, now I see them as fellow strugglers and sinners in need of a savior in need of being set free from their enslavement to Satan and sin. 
I begin to see people now like Jesus sees people. And my whole attitude toward them is different. It's different than it was. Because now I'm compelled. You go, they don't deserve it. I know, neither did I. See, I've already received mercy. So now I'm compelled to show that same mercy to them. And not only am I showing them mercy because I have received mercy, but I'm showing mercy to them because you know what? I'm still receiving mercy. I'm still messing up. I'm still falling short. And God's not condemning me. God's not pouncing on me. God's continuing to pour out his mercy and grace on me. And so I just want it to flow, just flow right on through me into the next undeserving fellow. Jesus isn't saying that kingdom people get mercy because they give mercy. He says kingdom people have already gotten mercy, so they give mercy and they keep giving mercy because they're still getting mercy too. They get the grace thing, right? And then the sixth thing he says is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now listen, if you're following along with all this so far and you're thinking, hey, I think I'm pretty good. I think Jesus had me in mind when he was unpacking the Beatitudes. I mean, I am climbing up that mountain. I mean, I'm the most humble guy I know. Thinking about writing a book. I'm so good at it, actually, right? If you're kind of like really looking at this going, I think he's really lucky to have me on his team, then that all kind of comes undone when you get to this statement. When Jesus says in verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Is that, is that you today? I mean, on the outside, you might have us fooled. But when that head hits the pillow tonight and it says you and Jesus, what do you know to be true about your heart? Is it pure? See, this is where the self-reliant, self-confidence thing starts to crumble, right? Who among us has a pure heart? Nobody. We know, don't we, that our hearts are divided. That when it comes to The Lord, our hearts are disloyal to him. You know it and I know it. Our hearts are selfish. Our hearts are tricky. They're divided. They're foolish. Jeremiah the prophet says, above all, they are deceitfully wicked. That's our hearts. And this statement from Jesus about being pure in heart, you know what it does? It reminds us we need Jesus. We need him at the point of our new birth but we need him every step of the way in our new life. We'll never graduate beyond needing Jesus. Nobody in this room is ever going to hit a place of maturity spiritually in your life that you don't need Jesus as much today as you needed him on day one. We're gonna need him through the whole journey and this statement from Jesus reminds us of that, it's only the pure in heart that get to see God. You know what that means? It means it's humanly impossible for any of us on our own to ever see God. We'll never be able to do it. We'll never be able to qualify to see God because our hearts are messed up. If I would have any hope of ever seeing God, I gotta have a different heart than the one I've got. I've gotta have a heart transplant. I need a heart that I don't have. Listen closely, religious people. You cannot become pure in heart by trying harder. You can't even become pure in heart by trying to be like Jesus. 
the control system is still the wrong one. There's got to be a change of heart. That's what's required. And what's required is what God provides. Listen to what Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 36, 26. God says through Jeremiah, I'll give you a new heart. I'm going, Jesus, I need a new heart. You said the pure in heart is the only one to get to see you. I need a new heart. And God says, I'll give you a new heart. And I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I'll place my spirit within you and cause you, I'll cause you, I'll do the work, I'll do the heavy lifting, God says. I'll cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. This is insane. We never could have climbed that mountain to see God face to face. None of us could do that. We were dirty, rotten, stinking, filthy sinners. But God in his love came into our world, robed his only son in human flesh, lived a perfect sinless life, died as our substitute on the cross. God raised him from the dead. And then God says, I've done all of that. And now I'm going to come to you and I'm going to grab that old jacked up heart out of you. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. And then I'm going to cause you to live it out. And then I'm going to bless you for it. I'm going to make you happy for it. You're going to get all the reward. That's crazy. But he does that so he gets all the glory. There's no boasting whatsoever. To God alone be all the glory to us. We just get the joy. And this is why God says you're happy. You're blessed. Joy. This is amazing. What's the ultimate reward? What did he just say? The pure in heart, they get to see God. There's no greater reward than that. Here's one way you know you're a kingdom person today. Because your greatest desire is to see God. If your greatest desire has something to do with a mansion and streets of gold, you just moved one form of materialism to another place is all you've done. The born again, the kingdom person, they can think of no higher good than to get to see God face to face. Kingdom people want to return to that place where man walked with God in the cool of the day as the sun started to dip below the pine tops. That's what kingdom people long for and that's what the pure in heart, Jesus said, are gonna get those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who show mercy, they're also the pure in heart because God's done this work and they will see God. Seventh thing he says, verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the sons of God, the daughters of God. He starts with identity again, happy ones, blessed ones, kingdom ones. What about them? They're peacemakers. That's the attitude they have. They wanna make peace. He didn't say peacekeepers. Peacekeeping and peacemaking are worlds apart. Keeping peace is this passive, sit back, don't say anything. I know it's broken, I know it's messed up, but I don't wanna make things worse. We're just gonna kind of go along to get along and pretend it's all okay. That's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not peacemaking. He's talking about kingdom people step into the hard places. Kingdom people step into the divided places. Kingdom people step into those places and they work and they pray for peace. They go into difficult situations and they deal with 
people who are being difficult because they want to see God restore what's been broken. Their heart's desire is to see the shalom of God pervasive in every human heart, for the peace of God to rule and to reign around them. Peacemakers don't stir up problems. Peacemakers stir up peace. That's what they do. Are you a peacemaker? And what's the reward for that? Jesus says, people will say of them, they must be sons of God. They must be daughters of God. What a compliment, by the way. Can you think of a higher compliment anybody could pay a human being than for somebody to say, you know what, you're acting just like God. Because God would do that very same thing. In fact, God has done that very same thing. He stepped into my difficult situation. And through the blood of Jesus, he made one who was his enemy, his son. He made peace with me. What a compliment that it would be said of us, that we would do what God does, that we would step into the hard places, that we would do the hard work of bringing peace to broken things and broken people, that people might say, that's exactly what Jesus did. It's exactly what Jesus does. They must be sons and daughters of God. He's done that for us through his blood. And we're never more like him, Jeremiah, than when we're making peace in this world toward others and others toward God. Then the final statement of Jesus that he says here in this part of his sermon, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice he starts with identity again, happy ones, blessed ones, kingdom ones. But there isn't a particular attitude in this one. Instead, what he's speaking to is the sum total of the other seven statements. When you put all those statements together, what you get is righteousness. When God makes a person this different, this new life results in righteousness. A person becomes righteous in their ways. You become like Jesus. And if you're living like Jesus, then you should expect in this world that this world is going to treat you like this world treated Jesus. In this world, kingdom people, godly people will be persecuted. Now some of you think you're being persecuted for being a Jesus person. Some of you think you're being persecuted for being a a godly person, and maybe you are being persecuted, but maybe it's not because of righteousness. You might be being persecuted because you're obnoxious. It's true. You might be being persecuted because you have to always be right, and it's driving people crazy. You might be being persecuted, you think, but it's because you act foolishly or an immaturely, or because you run your mouth way too much and you say insensitive things. You may think you're being persecuted, but it's not because of Jesus. You're being persecuted because you're not even trying to be likable. There's all kinds of ways that you can feel like you're being persecuted, but that doesn't mean that you are being persecuted because of righteousness. 
Jesus says, happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. In other words, happy are those who are getting heat in this world because they're living and acting and loving like me. That's what Jesus is saying. Happy are you in this world if you're catching enemy fire because you're living and thinking and loving like Jesus. Jesus says if it's because of him that you're being persecuted, you're going to be happy because living like Jesus is the best way to live. There's no greater way to live your life. And Jesus says to you, if that's you, it'll be worth it. Because the kingdom of heaven is yours and great will be your reward. And I don't know if you noticed this, but he just wrapped this up the same way he started it. He started with poor in spirit, right? And what did he say their reward was? Kingdom of heaven. And he traced the life of a person who's poor in spirit. He traced it all the way through these verses and he's brought it full circle now. And he said, this is what you're gonna be like in my kingdom. This new birth is gonna result in this new life. When you're born, The kingdom's gonna be yours, but when it's all said and done, the kingdom's gonna be yours, and great will be your reward. But really, all these rewards that he's mentioned here, they'll be comforted, they'll inherit the earth, they shall see God. Aren't all those rewards just different ways of saying the same thing? You get God. You get God. You get his kingdom in all of its fullness for all of eternity. And God says, my people, kingdom people, they're happy and they're blessed because they have found true happiness and they will find it to its deepest and to its fullest when all's made new. I hope that if nothing else today, you can look at what we've just read and you realize none of what Jesus describes there comes naturally to anybody. I mean, you could think, well, I'm kind of a merciful sort of person. That's not the kind of mercy he's talking about here. He's talking about mercy that's like the mercy of God kind of mercy. Humility, not like you're kind of thinking. None of this comes naturally toward us. These aren't personalities that God's trying to describe here. This isn't intended. None of what Jesus is saying here in this sermon, in his sermon, none of what he's saying is intended to inspire us to, I'm gonna try harder I'm going to try to be more humble. I'm going to buy a book about being merciful. I'm going to try to be more merciful. I'm going to work on myself. I'm going to improve myself. None of this is intended to drive us toward us. All of this is intended to drive us to Jesus. Lift your eyes up, people. Where does our help come from? It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and and on earth. Today, Jesus is driving hearts toward himself with these verses. And by the way, he's driving all of us to him, but he's driving us in this room today from two different directions. See, some of you are here today and you're hearing this and you're thinking, that's not me at all. And you're not lying about that. And the reason it's not you is because you're not a kingdom person. You've not yet given your life to Jesus. And what Jesus is doing through his sermon here is he's provoking you, a person who is in sin, a person who is separated from God. He is provoking you to move to Jesus today and to be saved, to come into his kingdom, to have new birth, 
and experience new life in Christ. But there's a whole bunch of the rest of us. He's, he's doing something to provoke us too this morning. He's provoking us to move toward Jesus today too. But it's a little different. See, we're kingdom people. We, we, we've experienced new birth. We've been born again. We've been saved. We sit here. We know that. We're, we, the, his spirit bears witness with our spirit. We're the sons and daughters of God. But we hear this sermon that Jesus is preaching and we go, hey, that's what my life's supposed to look like now? That's what new life in Jesus is supposed to look like? Jesus, that's not what, what my life looks like. And Jesus is saying to us today, I know. And what I'm trying to provoke in you today, my child, is that you would move toward me and be changed by me today. That you would get on your face before me and cry out to me, God, I need you. Oh, how I need you now. Because God, that's not me. If you died to make that me, and I'm telling you today, that's not me. And that can't be me by anything that me does. That can only be me by what you do. So God, I'm dying to me today, and I wanna live fully to you. So God, here I am. Will you just take over and you just change my life? It's yours, no longer I, but Christ who lives in me, God. I don't wanna live that way anymore that doesn't match up with all that you've done for me, God. Here I am. Would you change it? This is what Jesus is doing through this sermon. He's provoking hearts to move toward him, not move toward ourselves and better effort and more work and more labor, but to move toward him and to find rest and to find salvation and to find transformation that none of us can bring on ourselves. See, maybe today, you need to come to him to be saved. And I've been praying for people to be saved today. But there's a whole bunch of us in here today. We need to come to Jesus and ask him to change us. Because what he says about us is not being lived out through us. And we need to say, God, I need you. I need you to do that. Because what we've been doing, church, is, is we've had our life and our agenda and our plans and our wants, and man, we've been building our kingdom. And it's up and to the right, and we're digging that. John the Baptist, though, had it right. He said, it's not about me increasing. The way this is gonna work is I'm gonna decrease. And his life and his plans and his agenda constantly down and to the left. And this is what Jesus is inviting his people to do today. Is to abandon our own little kingdoms and plans and agendas and wants and desires and follow that path of John the Baptist. And today say, God, I want to decrease. And I want you and I need you to increase in my life. Listen, if you're not a Christian today and you realize this life he's describing is nothing like yours, then know this. He's driving you today. He's driving. He's provoking you to be saved. And if you are saved and you're like, man, that's not me. I'm way off. He's provoking you. This is why Jesus preached this sermon 2,000 years ago. This is why he's still preaching it through his word today. He's provoking you to run to him today and to be changed. And I've been praying for us today. I've been praying you'll get a pastor. That's a lot more like this than the one you currently have. And I've been praying that this pastor would be blessed to have a church that's a whole lot more like this than the one I currently have. Let's just be honest. That's what we're all thinking in this room. And if you're looking at me thinking I'm the answer to your problems and I'm looking at you thinking you got the answer to my problems, boy, have we not paid attention to what Jesus is saying. He's saying I'm the answer. Will we 
come to him and surrender. And if we will, here's what's going to happen. He's going to move in our neighborhoods. And he's going to walk our streets. And he's going to shop our stores. And he's going to eat dinner in our homes. And he's going to sit around our fire pits. And we will be happy. So God, that is our desire. You. In us. You. Through us. That's our desire. God, I pray for those today that have never given you their life as Savior, that they would do that today. I know you're provoking people to come to know you today. God, I also know you're provoking people who claim to know you to be changed by you so that our lives bear some semblance of the fact that we, we do know you. God, I pray that we would fall on our faces today and ask you to change our lives. We need you today. We need you today, God, to save us from sin. We need you to save us from ourselves. We need you to save us from this maddening life pursuit that we're in of up and to the right, up and to the right. God, save us from that madness today and draw us to yourself. We need you to change us. May we be living sacrifices today before you. No longer I but Christ. Throughout the ages, God has reached down and he's changed people's lives. He changed Abraham and Isaac, his son, and his son, Jacob. He changed a guy by the name of Moses. A shepherd boy by the name of David completely changed their lives. A young Jewish girl named Mary, man, he changed her life. A fiery fisherman by the name of Peter. A persecutor of the church named Saul. He's changed so many, and he's still changing lives today. He'll change yours today if you'll ask him. He'll change this entire church. If we'll begin to call out to God, God, we need you. We need you, God. Do you know you need him today? If you don't need him, I'd find somewhere else to go on Sunday morning for the next couple months. Because everything Jesus is gonna preach through this sermon is this, you need me you need me, you need me. Do you know you need him today? If you do, then why don't you cry out to him this morning? I'll do it tomorrow. No, today. Let's do it today, church. Let's tell the Lord today, we need you, Lord. We need salvation. We need transformation. We need you to change us. We need you, God. We need you. I wanna invite you to stand and let's cry out to the Lord. Let's worship the Lord. Let's obey the Lord. Let's start this week off exactly on the path that God would have us to start it out on, okay? Crying out that we need him. Step one, I need you, God.